The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Before I read Psalm 85, I'm going to read you something that somebody typed me and I've been waiting to read it to you. It's called The Machine. Every Sunday, millions of people head to church. They go to worship the Lord and Savior Jesus. What happens in that church is remarkable. Somewhere, someone is complaining about the music. Some are complaining about the temperature. Others, about the sermon. Still others complain about the decor, about the way the snow is plowed, about, which isn't a problem here, um, about the way the grass is cut, also not a problem at this church. Um, maybe about the awful coffee. The building needs to be bigger so we can grow. Why do these people go to church? Because it is a club atmosphere. They pay their dues, disguised as tithes, and feel like they are owed a say-so and get angry when they don't get their way. They then go to a higher up and complain louder. Sometimes a meeting is held to discuss these issues. This is burdensome and it creates even more ill will. The rumor mill starts and gets more folks involved. This must be discussed and a solution developed or at least a plan developed because the corporate church is measured by men, by the attendance, growth, ties, and reputation in the community by the leaders and they cannot look bad to the community and lose members. How does Jesus measure a church? He says, check John 15, 4. These same people bring into their club societal demands such as LGBTQWXYZ, abortion, governmental mandates, ESG programs that further pollute the already club-like attitudes away from what the real focus should be. Have you seen the word yet? The word of God? The Savior, Jesus? No? Why? Because all the efforts to hold on to the club have taken focus away from Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of the entire Bible, yet clubs spend inordinate amount of time and funds to maintain the clubhouse and their status, meaning their social status in the community. Instead, a church is supposed to lead the community towards Jesus and away from that which it has become. It has joined society in the same evil ways that it is supposed to be standing against. It is supposed to be a shining light in the darkness of society that leads people to the truth of the gospel, encouragement in learning the Bible. So how do we become the church that Jesus wanted? We stop being a club. We stop collecting dues ties. We aren't under the law anymore because we are in Jesus. We stop trying different ways and just share the gospel. To grow a church, the body of Christ that belongs to Jesus, not to us. We speak the truth as Holy Scripture states it. We stop being measured by attendance and growth of a club atmosphere. We worship together in the name of the Lord in an atmosphere that helps people become closer to each other in an intimate way. We continue learning about Jesus together. 
We share each other's burdens. We pray together. We break bread together. We don't place time constraints on our time together. We laugh together. We cry together. We do not live under the Mosaic law. We live in the freedom that Jesus gave us. We support those who teach us as we feel led. Imagine if there were no overhead financially, no building and grounds to maintain, if the time and funds taken for all the activities that are required to operate a facility went instead to minister to others. Perhaps there's a reason that the temple was torn down. Maybe it was to show us how effectual small groups of folks in house churches are. Jesus met with thousands outside the temple and shared the word of God. Maybe it is time to reconsider house churches, how much less stress there is on the house church than a clubhouse. We need to stop thinking of the church as a building and instead remember it is us, the followers of Jesus. Did the Lord ever tell us to go build a church building? No, he said, Matthew 16, 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What is the church? 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? How much stronger would Christians be when free to worship as the Bible says? Now, all this being said, there is at least one church I know of that worships as a small group. It is not a nonprofit, free from any government mandates, and speaks the word every single day and is available by the internet live and in recordings. I'm very grateful for this church and its pastor for the encouragement in learning the Bible. Not sure who he's talking about, but he also encourages the house church as it reaches those in communities worldwide. The house church or small group is used a great deal in countries that do not allow Christians to live. I do mean live. They are martyred for their faith in Jesus. As our nation decays further, the house churches will become much more prevalent as they will not be easily located. It is important that we continue worshiping and learning together until we are called home. It is a great encouragement to know that others care about you and for you and also happen to know the Lord as you do. What a joy it is to pray for each other. I pray over this now in the name of Jesus that those who read it are not insulted but encouraged to do the right thing. Whatever it is that Jesus called you to do or say, do it. Do not be afraid to speak out against evil. It is our job. In Jesus' name, amen. As my friend would say, read your Bible. That was written by Tom Steiger, who happens to be sitting in the back row right now, visiting from the cold north where they have snow that they have to shovel. Very well said. Psalm 85, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. 
Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. We are in Joshua 21. It's verses 9 through 19. This is entitled, The Cities of the Children of Aaron, the Priest. So they gave from the tribe of the children of Judah and from the tribe of the children of Simeon these cities which are designated by name, which were for the children of Aaron, one of the families of the Kohathites, who were of the children of Levi. For the lot was theirs first, and they gave them Kiriath Arba, Arba was the father of Anak, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah, with its common land surrounding it. But the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. Thus, to the children of Aaron, the priests, they gave Hebron with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer, Livna with its common land, Jatir with its common land, Eshdemoa with its common land, Holon with its common land, Debir with its common land, Ain with its common land, Juta with its common land, and Bet Shemesh with its common land. Nine cities from those two tribes, and from the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its common land, Geba with its common land, Anatot with its common land, and Almon with its common land. Four cities. All the cities of the children of Aaron the priests were thirteen cities with their common lands. A few years ago, I got an email from Sergio about 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. He said he heard a pastor using that verse to describe the great things we can do because we are in Christ. In other words, the pastor was saying the verse is about us. Sergio said that the analysis just didn't make sense to him because the Bible is about Jesus but he couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. So I copied that verse and its explanation from my 2 Corinthians commentary and sent it to him. This is that short commentary. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now that pastor was saying that that pertains to us, and we can do all these things because of that. Speaking of Christ Jesus, this is my commentary on that verse. Speaking of Christ Jesus, Paul says that all the promises of God in him are yes. However, the translation here with the inserted are makes yes the predicate of the promises. That is not the intent. Rather, what Paul is saying is that Christ is the incarnate answer to the promises of God. Thus, it should be stated as a separate clause, as the ERV cites it. For how many soever be the promises of God in him is the yea. It is Christ who is the fulfillment of the promises. When we call on him, those promises which were fulfilled in him now belong to us. Going on, it says, and in him, amen. Vincent's Word Studies notes that in giving this answer in his person and life, Christ puts the emphatic confirmation upon God's promises. God made promises, and those promises are emphatically fulfilled in Jesus. This is explained by him when he spoke to the leaders of Israel in John chapter 5. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. 
You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He, Jesus, he is the fulfillment of scripture, and therefore the promises of God which were made to the people of God, to Abraham, for example, explaining that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, are realized in him. Paul gives this thought in Romans 15. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And in the book of Hebrews, we read this. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Every messianic promise is realized in Jesus and in him is the amen. It means he is faithful and true. In him is the confirmation and establishment of those promises. In Revelation 3.14, he is called the Amen to demonstrate this. End of commentary. Our text verse comes from Colossians 1. It is verse 28. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Unfortunately, I do not have the conversation from Sergio to quote exactly because he failed to keep it or even remember having it. That's two strikes on him. At least I remember having it. Also, it was a bit disappointing that he didn't just go to the commentary without asking me. Strike three. Despite this, you get the point from the analysis. The promises of God have been made. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of them all. He is the answer to the questions about what God is doing. How is that relevant to today's passage? Once again, it is all in the details. He is the response from God as to what is needed to be right with him. Without Jesus Christ, there would only be one path leading to condemnation. But since the fall of man, another path has been hinted at. Jesus Christ is the one who has made that other avenue possible. Thank God for Jesus Christ who has made it so. The details are to be found in our passage today. Such great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is cities from Judah and Simeon. It's verses 9 through 12. The first eight verses of the chapter detailed the lot for each of the sons of Levi concerning their tribal land grants. The first lot was to the priests, the Kohathites, who are the children of Aaron, son of Kohath. The second lot went to the rest of the sons of Kohath. The third lot went to the sons of Gershon, son of Levi. That was followed by the fourth lot being designated to the sons of Merari, son of Levi. Those first eight verses ended with the words, and the children of Israel gave these cities with their common lands by lot to the Levites as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. With that, the tribal land grants, according to those lots, will now be designated beginning with the words of verse 9. 
So they gave from the tribe of the children of Judah and from the tribe of the children of Simeon these cities which are designated by name. The tribes of Judah and Simeon are the first to have their Levitical cities delineated. All of their Levitical cities are to be given to the priestly class, the sons of Aaron, son of Kohath. Judah means praise, Simeon means he who hears. For the sake of remembrance, the tribe of Simeon received its inheritance within the borders of Judah. Thus, with the exception of four cities to be designated in Benjamin, all of the priestly cities will be located around Jerusalem within the borders of Judah. Those four cities in Benjamin are in the area bordering Jerusalem today, and thus by God's overarching hand of providence, they are all located around where the temple will eventually be erected hundreds of years later. Okay, now, the temple was built in what year after the Exodus? Can anybody tell me that? It came to mind just now. I'm sure I'm right about it. Somebody can check while I'm giving the rest of the sermon. The 480th year after the children of Israel departed. That's what it says at the time of Solomon. So 480 years before yeah, and this is like 30 years later, or what is it, 30, 40 some years later. We're in Joshua, we'll say 48 years by now, 47, I think. Take that out of 480. That is a long time ahead. God was planning. He knew in advance that those priests would be around Jerusalem. Okay, it doesn't seem to make any sense to put the priests down here when the, you know, the tabernacle is up in Shiloh. But this is God working out his plan progressively. All right? Verse 10, which were for the children of Aaron. It is singular, vehi livne aharon, and it was to sons Aaron. Though seemingly awkward, the subject is the lot that is mentioned in the final clause of the verse. Thus it is saying that the lot was, not the cities were. What seems awkward is actually a note defining the importance of how the lot is given. By noting Aaron's sons now, it is highlighting their importance within the tribe of Levi, being set apart as the priestly class. Aaron means very high. Once this division has been noted, only then does it name the family of the tribe. Verse 10 continues. One of the families of the Kohathites who were of the children of Levi. Again, it is more specific, noting that the chief of the families, the son in the singular, mi mishpot hakhati mi bene levi, from families, the Kohathite, from sons, Levi. There is one family of Kohath that is then divided into sons. Aaron is the first son noted, just as Kohath is the first son of Aaron. Depending on the root used for the name Kohath, it means either obedience or gathering or assembly. So it could be gathering or assembly. Levi means attached. Verse 10 continues, for the lot was theirs first. For to them was the lot first. As noted, the goral, or lot, is the subject of the verse, but it is only introduced now. Thus, the priestly class of Aaron is set apart, almost emphatically, by the structure of the sentence. With that, their cities are now to be named. Verse 11, And they gave them Kiriath Arba. Arba was the father of Anak, which is Hebron. To be precise, it reads, and gave to them Kiriath Arba, father the Anok, it Hevron. The spelling of the name is different here than any other time. Instead of Anok, it reads Anok. 
The addition of the sixth letter, Vav, is what changes the spelling and pronunciation. I have it here for you. You see the first letter is an Ayin, Nun, and Kuf, which means Anak. But if you add in the Vav between the Nun and the Kuf, it comes out to Anok. Okay? That is really important. Whether you, whether you really got it or not, that is very important. Why would it be spelled differently? And why would it happen to be during the time of the priest's designation of cities? These things are actually important, and I did not see a single commentary on this. That is criminal. This is the first designated Levitical city. It is the area claimed by Caleb as his possession, as promised by the Lord after his faithfulness noted in Numbers 13 and 14. The area was actually designated to him back in Joshua 14. Kiriath Arba means city of four. Hevron means alliance. Anak means long neck or necklace. But that requires more of an explanation. Anak signifies being fitted out with the word Anak signifies being fitted out with supplies and thus furnished liberally, just as a necklace is made up of many pieces. This city is next said to be, verse 11 continues, in the mountains of Judah with the common land surrounding it. Being a city, it is referred to in the feminine. Behar Yehuda ve'et migrasheha sivoteha. In Mount Judah and her common lands and her surroundings. As noted, this was the area given to Caleb. That point is now explicitly stated to remind Israel of this fact. Verse 12, but the fields of the city and its villages, they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. Though only the Peshitta, the standard Bible of the Syriac tradition, translates the preposition this way, it literally says, in his possession. The whole verse more literally reads, and field, the city, and her villages, gave to Caleb son Yefuni in his possession. The entire area stated in the singular as field, along with all of the villages of that area, belonged to Caleb. The common land noted in the previous verse was the area surrounding the city and which extended out for 2,000 cubits. This was reserved for the flocks and herds of the Levites within the city, as noted in Numbers 35.5 concerning Levitical cities. We read this last week. We'll read it again. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side, 2,000 cubits. On the south side, 2,000 cubits. On the west side, 2,000 cubits. And on the north side, 2,000 cubits. The city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as common lands for the cities. Remembering that cities designated as Levitical cities had other people living in them. The city itself was specifically set apart for the Levites, but this did not mean that it was only for them. This is evidenced as scripture continues to unfold. As for the names, Caleb means dog. Yefune means he will be beheld. Verse 13, thus to the children of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer. The order is not as laid out in the Hebrew. The stress is on the fact that this is a city of refuge. And to sons Aaron, the priest, gave city refuge, the slayer, Hebron and her common lands. It is one of the six cities of refuge and the first of the three to be designated within the land of Canaan proper west of the Jordan. Next, verse 13 continues, Livna with its common land. More precisely, Ve'et Livna, Ve'et Migrasheha, and Livna, 
and her common lands. Livna means whiteness. However, that comes from lavan, a verb meaning to make white or make bricks, because bricks whiten when they are made. Verse 14, Jatir with its common land, Eshtemoa with its common land. Depending on the root, Jatir means remainings or remnant, surplus, preeminence, abundance, excellence, or something similar. Despite the variations, there is a general agreement that the name is best defined as preeminence. Eshtemoa comes from Shema, to hear. Thus, it means hearing, but in the sense of obedience. Hear, O Israel, it means be obedient. Verse 15, Holon with its common land, Debir with its common land. Depending on the root, Holon means strong place or sandy place. Debir means place of the word. Verse 16, Ayin with its common land, Juta with its common land, and Beth Shemesh with its common land. Ayin means eye or fountain. Juta means extended, leveraged, or will be stretched out. Abarim explains the root saying the following. The verb nata means to leverage, to manipulate one's environment beyond one's natural powers, but at the price of range, accuracy, diversity, duration, and so on. A price that when unpaid drags the entire enterprise into a net negative collapse. All technology, including information technology, is leverage, which is always to be wielded with great care, whilst always respecting its inevitable price. The word mate, or tribe, is derived from this word. It indicates a staff that represents the tribe. Beshemesh means house of the sun. In total, from Judah and Simeon, there are, verse 16 continues, nine cities from those two tribes. These nine cities come from within the land of Judah, but Simeon is within the borders of Judah. As some of the cities came from within Simeon, it means that the nine cities are from both tribes. Of the number nine, Bullinger says, it is the last of the digits and thus marks the end and is significant of the conclusion of a matter. It is akin to the number six, six being the sum of its factors, three times three equals nine, and three plus three equals six. And it is thus significant of the end of man and the summation of all man's works. Nine is, therefore, the number of finality or judgment. The number two is the number of division or difference. However, when there are two things, they will contrast, but they will also confirm a whole. I gave the example last week. I'll give it again. For example, the two testaments of the Bible contrast grace and law, but they confirm the whole word of God. Next, more cities are noted. The whole world is at stake because of sin. Nothing will stop the judgment to come. Without Christ Jesus, we are all done in. Without him, the future is bleak and glum. But because of the work that he has wrought, we can be free from condemnation. With his own blood, he has bought precious souls from every nation. The cities have a story to tell us. They reveal the glory of what God has done. In the giving of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, sin is judged and the victory is won. Our second thought today is cities from Benjamin. It's verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, and from the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its common land, Geba with its common land. These are from the third designated tribal inheritance that extends from the northern border of Judah, that of Benjamin. 
Benjamin means son of the right hand. Gibeon or Givon comes from Gavia, meaning a cup or a bowl. When upside down, it looks like a hill. As such, it means hill town or hilly. Geba has the same essential meaning, hill. Of these similar names, Abarim adds in a notable comment. They say there are no two ways about it. The names Geba, Gibeah, and Gibeot mean hill. But it's clear that in the Hebrew experience of reality, hills didn't only occur in the landscape, collections of earth, but also in the human populations that peopled it. The Hill of Benjamin may have been an actual hill, but it also represented the culture that formed within Benjamin. The Hill of Saul may have also been an actual hill, but it also referred to the national mood and atmosphere that he generated. To the Hebrews, a hill country resembled a humanity that consisted of separate and rivaling tribes, clans, and families, while a plain resembled humanity at peace. Of the next verse, a famous biblical figure resided there. Verse 18, Anatot with its common land and Almon with its common land, four cities. Anatot was where the prophet Jeremiah, also of the priestly class, came from. That is recorded in Jeremiah 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anatot in the land of Benjamin to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. The root of Anatot, Anna, has four separate usages. Thus, it can mean answer, response, occupation, humbled or afflicted, or sing. Jones's dictionary says it means answers to prayers. Ammon comes from alam, to hide or conceal. Thus, it means hidden or concealed. But it is not necessarily the type of hidden that means hidden away as a secret. Rather, it looks to something that is not noticed purposefully or unintentionally, but which may be revealed later. An example of this is found in Leviticus 4.13. There it says, Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden, alam, from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty. A purposeful example is found in the words of Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you pay no attention, alam, during times of trouble? As such, it could very well signify unnoticed. As for the number four, Bollinger says, it is emphatically the number of creation, of man in his relation to the world as created. While six is the number of man in his opposition to and independence of God, it is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made, of material things, and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Hence, it is the world number, and especially the city number. Verse 19, all the cities of the children of Aaron, the priests, were 13 cities with their common lands. The cities come from three separate tribes, but all are in close proximity to Jerusalem. Thus, the Lord designated the priests to be close to the city where his name would reside long before the move to that location was made. Everything was prepared in advance for the time when the kingship and the priesthood would both be established in Jerusalem from that time forward. As for the number 13, 
Bullinger says that every occurrence of the number 13, and likewise, every multiple of it, stamps that with which it stands in connection with rebellion, apostasy, defection, corruption, disintegration, revolution, or some kindred idea. This is the state of the world without Christ. Israel is being used to reveal this. However, as we saw last week, Bullinger goes further concerning the number. He says, the connection of the number 13 with substitution and atonement. What is the priestly tribe meant to do? The sacrifices of substitution and atonement for the people. So you wonder why the number 13 happens to be used? There you go. The Savior, though without sin, was made sin or a sin offering for his people. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for their iniquities. He was, in fact, numbered with the transgressors. Think of the number 13. Therefore, this number is not only the all-pervading factor of sin, but also of sin's atonement. It is not only the number which brands the sinner as a rebel against God, but it is the number borne by the sinner's substitute. His very names in the Old Testament before the work of atonement was entered on or accomplished are all multiples of 13, just as his names afterwards in the New Testament and when the work of atonement was carried out are all multiples of eight. Last week I gave you examples. I won't repeat them this week. These are the cities of the priestly class of the Levites, the sons of Aaron, and they have a story to tell. What works will suffice to please our God? Who has the preeminence that it will take? Who has accomplished enough that he would applaud and extend his hand out for a shake? Is there any who has heard and obeyed so that God will listen and favorably reply? Who has done enough for his wrath to be stayed? Has anyone done enough to even squeak by? The cities have a story to tell about the marvelous thing that God has done. If we pay heed, things will go well when we learn of the deeds of God's own Son. Our third thought today is our great high priest. The previous passage in last week's sermon showed the overall picture of what Levi's inheritances point to. There were 13 inheritances in Israel showing the rebellion and apostasy of the world but when Christ is included, it is brought to a state of perfection once again. The verses today define the priestly role of Christ in that matter. The priests are included in three separate tribes, Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The number three defines what is real, substantial, complete, and entire. This reveals the full scope of Christ's priestly duties for all people at all times. However, there are divisions to be seen within these three inheritances as well. The first is that of Judah, praise, and Simeon, he who hears. As noted, these were for the sons of Aaron, very high, who is referred to as being from the family of Kohath, obedience, of the sons of Levi, attached. Christ is the praise of God and he who hears, meaning being obedient to God. He is the exalted, the very high high priest, Hebrews 4 verse 14, who was obedient even to death while being attached, Levi, to God through the incarnation. Every single one of those is pointing to Jesus. It says in Philippians 2, 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
With that defined, thus establishing the setting of the inheritance, it went on to naming the cities, identifying the first one in several ways over three verses. And they gave them Kiriath Arba. Arba was the father of Anak, which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah, with the common lands surrounding it. But the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his inheritance. Thus, to the children of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer. Kiriath Arba, city of four, is named. As has been seen, four is emphatically the number of creation, of man in his relation to the world as created. It is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made, of material things, and of matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Hence, it is the world number, and especially the city number, according to Bollinger. It refers to Christ's work in the material creation to reclaim it from the power of Satan. With that, it then notes Arba, the father of the Anok. Previous sermons explained that the word Anak signifies being fitted out with supplies and thus furnished liberally, just as a necklace is made up of many pieces. For example, it is used figuratively as a sign of pride, as in Psalm 73, verse 6, when referring to the wicked, where it says, therefore, pride serves as their necklace. With that understood, it was seen that this is the only time that the word is spelled with an additional letter above the sixth letter of the Hebrew Aleph Bet. Six is the number of man, especially fallen man. This then refers to Christ, the one who is furnished with everything necessary to redeem man through his priestly duties, and which is explained in the words of Hebrews 2. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Christ came in the appearance of sinful man, hence the additional vav. Next, calling it Hevron, alliance, looks to the relationship established between Christ and his people because of his work. Being in the mountains of Judah, praise signifies a gathering of a large centralized group of people. We've seen that every time you have the word mountain used, you want to think of a large centralized group of people who have been brought to God through Christ's priestly work because he is the praise of God. The note concerning Caleb is given as a historical reference to remind Israel concerning his inheritance but it is also a typological reminder that he, despite being identified as a Gentile, is included in the inheritance of Judah, and thus the commonwealth of Israel. From Ephesians chapter 2, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. With that explained, the identification of Hebron continued in verse 13, noting that it was given to Aaron the priest, his name means very high, as a city of refuge. 
When one is in alliance with Christ, he is the refuge for all who come to God through him, as it says in Hebrews 6. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Livna was named next. As stated, that comes from lavan, a verb meaning to make white or make bricks because bricks whiten when they are made. Following the use of this word ever since the early Genesis account where the people made lavan bricks to build the Tower of Babel, it has consistently pictured works-based salvation. In this case, because it is referring to a city of the Levites and thus to Christ, it is a picture defining his works. We rightly say that our salvation is the gift of God, not of works. But that does not mean that salvation is not of works. It is, just not our works. It is Christ's work that saves. His works are then imputed to us who do not work. Thus it is a gift. The next named city was Jatir, preeminence. It defines the person of Jesus Christ because of his work from Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Next, Eshtemoa was named. Like the name Simeon, it comes from the word Shema and is defined as hearing, but in the sense of obedience. It looks to the obedience of Christ, as was noted earlier when Philippians 2 verse 8 was cited. After that was named Holon. It signifies strong place. Several verses could be used to explain this, but Romans 5 verse 6 is sufficient. For when we were still without strength, in due time... Christ died for the ungodly. Likewise, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 is just as beautiful to express this. Romans 5 6 defines the salvation obtained through the strength of Christ, while 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 defines our capabilities in our state of salvation because of Christ. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. These and other verses clearly explain the city named Holon. Next was named Ain, or fountain. Jesus explained the meaning as he spoke to the woman at the well. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is the fountain by which our own fountains of everlasting life are derived. After that, Judah was named. That comes from nata, to leverage, and thus it means leveraged. As noted, it is where the symbol of authority, the mate or the staff, is derived from. When Moses stretched out the staff, the mate, which was a picture of Jesus Christ, he was leveraging the power of God. 
This should explain the symbolism. Christ is the manner in which God's power is leveraged for salvation. Lastly, Beth Shemesh, house of the sun, was noted from Judah and Simeon. That has been seen in several Joshua sermons as being typical of Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness who shines forth as the light of God described in Revelation 21 verse 23 and which John speaks of elsewhere as the light of the world. With those complete, it then noted that there were nine cities from Judah and Simeon, nine being the number of finality or judgment as applied to Christ in these cities is a clear reference to him as the completion, nine, of all things, either for salvation or, unfortunately, for condemnation. Two, there is a contrast between the two, but they confirm the final state of all men. From there, verse 17, Benjamin, or son of the right hand, was named. Christ is the son of the right hand. Mark 16, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The first two cities, Gibeon and Geba, are etymologically the same. The connection to Gabatha has been made several times already in Joshua. Having two cities named one after another with the same etymological root is a Hebrew way of providing emphasis by repeating a word or a thought. If you don't know what I'm talking about, think of what Jesus does. Verily, verily, I say to you, Jacob, Jacob, and he responds to God, etc. When you see the double, it is an emphasis. It is a way of emphatically identifying Christ's passion as the defining event that is pertinent to all humanity. Being typologically one out of two, it is as if there are separate rivaling tribes. There's the hill for the saved, and there is the hill for the condemned. From there, verse 18, first mentioned anatot, answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. As noted in the opening comments today, he is the yes and the amen. The priestly city of anatot is given as an advanced hint of this. He is the fulfillment of all of the messianic expectations. Finally, the last city was Almon, which I translated for clarity as unnoticed. It looks to Christ as our high priest where no sin goes unnoticed in atonement. But for those who have rejected him, no sin goes without notice for condemnation. The verse ended by noting they are four cities. It is again the number of creation, the world number, and the city number. The scope of Christ's work is all-inclusive as is indicated in the names of these four cities from Benjamin, the son of the right hand. Finally, verse 19 finished with the note that together these comprise 13 cities. It is the number of rebellion, apostasy, defection, corruption, disintegration, revolution, or some kindred idea. That is the world in which we live. And yet, it is also the number of substitution and atonement. The Savior, though without sin, was made sin, or a sin offering for his people. This is our high priest. This is Jesus, who has been meticulously described in the priestly Levitical cities of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. An interesting thought is that despite being divided between three tribes, and despite the two tribes, Judah and Simeon, being mentioned separately in verses 9 and 16, they are still counted together for their nine cities. Thus, the division is nine and four to equal 13. Therefore, there are two overall divisions, 
As such, the nine, finality and judgment, contrast the four, the number of creation, just as the cities, nine, and the tribes, two, contrast. And yet they also confirm the entire scope of Christ's authority over all creation to finalize all things and bring all things to judgment. The reason he can do this is because he is the one who has already received the judgment of the world upon himself as he stood on the pavement, Gabbatha, before the authority set before him. The king of Israel, the perfect lamb of God, and our Passover sacrifice was judged despite his perfection. God has allowed his sacrifice to be vicariously applied to us as the only suitable atonement for our sins. That is the substitution, the 13, the vicarious allowance of God. As this is so, and because God must judge sin, he has appointed Jesus Christ to be the one to accomplish this. This is his role as our high priest. Those for whom he mediates no longer face a judgment for sin. For those who do not come to him, there is only the expectation of judgment upon them for their sins. Let us be wise and discerning. The cities have been named and they had a story to tell. Pay heed and come to Jesus Christ today, who alone can restore you to God through what he has done. This is what I would ask you to do. And I didn't know that I would be typing this today, but I'll read you what I type from my Acts 17 commentary. We're almost done with Acts 17 in typing, not in doing, because I'm about 15 days ahead now. But I typed this first, which just happens to fit with um, what I just said about Christ's judging. Where is this? I'll start in verse 30, but it is um, verse 31 that I want you to pay attention to. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Everything about what we're seeing in all of these tribal allotments keeps pointing to one overarching truth, Jesus Christ. He's the subject and object of everything that we need to know in our lives, and it's all contained in Scripture. It is our chance to get to know the Creator of the universe until the day that He calls us home and we get to meet face to face. If you've never called on Jesus Christ, I would ask you to do that today. It's so simple. The gospel is the simplest message in the world. We were talking about it before we opened today, Ron and I, about the difficult word grace. Nobody can seem to get it. Grace is grace. It doesn't mean anything except grace. You can't add to it. There's nothing that you need to do to receive it except believe. That is what grace is. Jesus Christ died for your sin. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ came out of the grave. If you can believe that simple gospel, which is already recorded in Scripture, Paul says it, according to the Scriptures, if you can believe that, you will be saved. This is what he asks of us. It's so simple, and people keep tripping over it and adding to it. Add this, add that. You got to do this. You got to do that. If you're not doing this and you're really not saved, that's not what the Bible says. It says, if you believe this, you will be saved. The rest of it is up to you and how you are going to work for God or just sit around on your hands and do nothing. And when you get up to the Bema Seat of Christ in 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, you will find everything burned away. Please don't do that. Live for the Lord now. Honor him with your life. Talk to him. Talk, talking to the Lord is an act of what? Well, it, I'm thinking of the word faith. You can't talk to somebody that doesn't exist. And therefore, simply talking to the Lord, I am certain of this, folks, you will receive your reward for demonstrating faith when you are in troubled times, sad times, difficult times, and you pour your heart out to him. It means that you really believe he's there. Okay? Please, put Christ first in your life and everything will go as it should. Please do it. Our closing verse comes from Hebrews 3. It is verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Next week is Joshua 21. It's verses 20 through 26. How many? Do the math, all right? It's entitled, The Cities of Kohath, the Levites. That'll be our 47th Joshua sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I've got a question for you, and if you can answer this question, and it, this should be a pretty easy one. I know I say that every week, but this one should be pretty easy. If you have read this book, you will know this answer. And that's why I say read your Bible because somebody, if everybody in here reads their Bible every day, somebody will be in the book that I am asking you about right now. Okay. (laughs) You will get this Chick-fil-A gift certificate. What is the name of Samson's father? You just read it. That's what I want. So you should remember it. Elimelech? No. No. It's not Sam. That was really close. You're really close in this, buddy. Anybody? No. No. Samson's father's name is Manoah. Now, I will give you this if you can answer this second question. Can you tell me what Manoah in Hebrew means? Think it through, because I use this word a lot. The, the, the etymological root of Manoah is, anybody? Nuach, to give rest. So his name means rest or quiet. Come on. Nobody gets a Chick-fil-A today. Okay, at least you're reading your Bible to know that, okay? At least you're reading your Bible. She was in the right book. She just didn't remember. Shame on her. Okay, we've got to pull them and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Okay. The cities of, you know what? You can blame somebody named Bob for that. Because every Sunday when I get home, he's like, ask this question next week. And I always ignore him because I got so much to do. I don't have time to, to go. But I kept that email and I just said, okay, this week I'll do it. Bob is fired. Bob is fired. <laughs> Bob, you're fired, buddy. Okay. The cities of the children of Aaron the priest. So they gave from the tribes of the children of Judah and from the tribe of the children of Simeon also. These cities, which are designated by name, which were for the children of Aaron, to them, they did go. One of the families of the Kohathites, an initial burst, who were of the children of Levi, for their lot was first. Then they gave them Kiriath Arba. Arba was the father of Anak, a point we can't omit, which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah, with the common land surrounding it. But the fields of the city and its villages, this is not a digression, they gave to Caleb the son of Jephunneh as his possession. Thus to the children of Aaron the priest they gave 
Hevron with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer. Livna with its common land, Jatir with its common land, maybe they needed a bricklayer. Eshtemoa with its common land, Holon with its common land, a place pretty swell. Debir with its common land, Ayin with its common land, with a fountain there was no need to dig a well. Juta with its common land and Beth Shemesh with its common land also. Nine cities from those two tribes to the sons of Aaron, they did go. And from the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its common land, Geba with its common land and more. Anatot with its common land and Almon with its common land, cities four. All the cities of the children of Aaron the priests were 13 cities with their common lands, sweet places to hold feasts. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful story you keep telling us in these cities. And there's a lot of information. It's very hard to assimilate it all. But if we step back and take a look a second or a third time, it all makes sense. It's all laid out for us in your precious word to tell us of Jesus. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you that he is even now mediating for us. And he is our advocate. He is there speaking on our behalf, telling us, I have already paid the price for the sins of my people. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for what has been done so that we can have eternal reconciliation with you through his precious blood. We thank you. We praise you. We acknowledge you in our hearts and in our souls and be praised and live in the praises of your people always. Amen. Amen.